0: So Genesis chapter 39, if you have a Bible, you might want to go there. That's where we're going to read this morning. We've been studying the book of Genesis since um, back in um, uh, August or September. We started Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and now we're to Joseph. Jacob had um, 12 sons. Um, He only had two by his beloved Rachel. The first of those was Joseph. Joseph was the 11th child. Joseph was his father's um, delight. Joseph was um, given um, a cloak that designated him as family um, leader over all his older brothers, right in the face of of primogeniture, the the firstborn getting that kind of authority in a family. His brothers hated him because of it. And Joseph uh, wasn't shy about telling them about his dreams of all of his family bowing um, down to him, remember, Joseph is um, uh, set upon by his brothers who um, sell him uh, to Midianite traders on their way to um, Egypt, and um, uh, Joseph is purchased as a slave and we find Joseph, this most beloved, favored child in his household, um, a slave now in this pagan land that was foreign to him called Egypt purchased by a man named Potiphar so stand if you're able and willing hear the word of God Genesis chapter 39 now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt and Potiphar an officer of Pharaoh the captain of the guard an Egyptian had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him there For Joseph's sake, the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Isn't that interesting? (laughs) Everything he's in charge of but the food. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Isn't that interesting? There's only two times in the Bible, two people, that the Bible describes that way, that the Bible takes pains to um, refer to their um, fantastic uh, physical appearance. Here's one of them, Joseph. Do you remember who the other was? We covered it a couple of weeks ago. His mother, Rachel. It's in the genes, right? Um, and so after a time, it says and sin against God. And as she spoke to Joseph, day after day, he wouldn't listen. He wouldn't lie beside her or be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled, she called to the men of the house and said to them, see, he's brought among us a Hebrew. That's a, a, an, a, an ethnic slur. He's brought among us this filthy Hebrew to make sport of us. He came into me to lie with me. And I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice, cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled, got out of the house. Then she laid her garment by her side until her master came home and she told him the same story. This Hebrew servant whom you brought among us, he came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. And as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, she had said. His anger was kindled and Joseph's master took him And put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. Now, every scholar I read says the same thing about this. If Potiphar had believed his wife, Joseph would have been killed. He likely would have been killed on the spot. Remember, he's a slave. He has no rights, right? He has no legal rights or anything. This kind of offense to the owner would not have been tolerated anywhere. Is a clear indication by the punishment that he receives that Potiphar knew his wife. Knew what was going on here. Knew this was a trap. And Joseph isn't thrown into the dungeon. He's not thrown into the, the prison of prisons where nobody ever emerges. He's actually put in a political prison. Sort of a, a prison for very important um, people. And what happens there? It is prison though nonetheless. It says the Lord was with Joseph and and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, Joseph was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. This is the reading of God's holy infallible and inspired word the grass withers did you look at your lawn this morning (laughs) the grass withers the flower fades but not the word of god it stands forever amen be seated please so here's the question are you a success are you a success Are you leading a successful life? I don't know anybody that doesn't want to be a success, right? I don't know anybody that says, Brandon, I actually have a goal for this year. My goal is to fail. To fail royally, right? I don't know anybody that wouldn't want at the end of their life people to be gathered at their memorial service and say, um, this was a life well lived. This person invested their life uh, in things that Mattered. This was a successful life. The question is, how do you define it? I mean, what makes for a successful life, right? Um, in our culture, what do you think is the number one marker of a successful life in the eyes of people generally? Wealth, fortune, right? This person started all these businesses. This person has uh, this amount of wealth, we're told. And everyone goes, wow. And uh, not only that, they've got uh, this incredible mansion and they've got property in Colorado and they got a lake house here and they've got, you know, um, and they've got a boat and they got, wow, that's a successful life, right? So it's fortune or it could be, um, you know, fame, um, fame, fame. Uh, The problem with um, fame, you know, is O.J. Simpson was famous. Was that a successful life? Uh, Bernie Madoff was famous, right? Harvey Weinstein's famous. Um, Elvis Presley and his daughter were famous, right? Were their lives successful, lives, lives worthy of emulation Um, so if it's not fortune and it's not fame well it's family that's what what makes you famous to be able to say my son is I got three boys one my son's a doctor one's a lawyer right (laughs) they went to Harvard Yale one went to FSU we tried right What's interesting in this passage is we have somebody who is a slave, somebody who's bereft of everything that we would think would give you joy and happiness in this world. He's not only a slave, before the passage is over, he is a prisoner, and his life is deemed to be successful. How could that be? What's the markers of a successful life? Ready to go? Got a sermon outline in your worship folder? Hope it's helpful to you. The successful life, the first thing we want to say requires that you have the presence of God. It's the presence of God. I mean, we left off with Joseph. Remember, as I told you a minute ago, he was a bright boy. Joseph was his father's favorite. Joseph had the best of everything growing up. Joseph was chosen to be the family leader, Joseph, all the tribes of Israel, Joseph was uh, the head, right? Joseph was being groomed for success by his father. When all his brothers were out tending sheep, not Joseph, no, better things than being a a lowly shepherd were envisioned for Joseph. And this, of course, engendered the um, jealousy of his brothers and they choose to do away with him. They throw him, they rip his garment off of him, remember. They throw him into a cistern, into a deep well. There they leave him for an agonizing um, death. The only thing that rescues him is the fortuitous passing of, um, of, um, of, of traders, uh, foreign traders, Ishmaelites on their way to Egypt. Uh, so uh, rather than be murderers, uh, they choose to um, sell him for fortune, uh, get some money out of the deal, and Joseph ends up um, in shackles, a slave, on his way to a pagan. Land Now, here's where things begin to change in this sort of destitute story is he's sold to somebody named Potiphar and we're told that Potiphar is the captain of the guard. Now, the captain of the guard doesn't sound that influential. Um, and uh, here you need to know that the captain of the guard is the Secretary of Defense of Egypt. The captain of the guard is the head of the entire armed forces of the most powerful civilization on the planet Earth at that time. This is a very important man. Now, Joseph's a lowly servant... But he's a lowly servant under a very powerful uh, man. So we look at his life, though, and we say this would be, appear to be a far cry from a successful life. Somebody who was raised for all these great things, but it's gone, it's dashed. His own family turns on him, sells him into slavery. He's a nobody, he's a slave in a distant land of pagan people. But everything Joseph puts his hand to prospers there. He has this meteoric rise in Potiphar's house, right? He goes from servant there, just a lowly servant, to sort of top of the servants, to manager of everything. Ultimately, he becomes the COO of Potiphar Enterprises, right? He's the chief operating officer over the whole house. Potiphar can do whatever he wants, go wherever he wants, tend to whatever he wants. He doesn't even need to know Joseph's got it all. Right? So, how does this happen? Right? Because it happens again. Remember, even when he's falsely accused, thrown into prison, what happens? In no time, he's a lowly prisoner, but in no time, he's the head of the prisoners. Then he's the head of the whole prison. Then he's running the whole prison. Then the person in charge of the prison turns the whole prison over to Joseph. Now, obviously, Joseph has some mad managerial skills, right? I mean, he is a gifted um, young man. And what he can accomplish that God has raised up. But how do you go from being a slave and a prisoner to having the kind of responsibility and progress that Joseph made? And there's one answer repeated four times in this passage. What's the answer? What happened to elevate Joseph? What? What does it say? The Lord was with him. The Lord, no, yeah, there we go. The Lord was with Joseph. And he became a successful man, right? That's the second verse of the whole passage. Go all the way to the end of the passage. It says it again. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything. Then Joseph charged because the Lord was with him. Four times we're told the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. What must you have to have a successful life? You must have the presence of God. You must have God with you. I mean, this is really the story of the Bible. This is the God who reveals himself that if you're the object of his unmerited favor, he will be with you. Right from creation, right? God makes Adam and Eve, there's two people and the Bible says that at the end of the day, God comes and walks with them in the garden. He is what? With them. He intends not to be a celestial God, far removed. He comes into creation, he is with um, his people. Um, when, they, uh, when the Israelites are traveling through the wilderness, um, God is with them when they make their break out of Egypt, right? Um, and, uh, and, and in the Sinai, God is with them by a cloud during the day to cover them, by a pillar of fire at night. And wherever the pillar of fire stops and they would make camp and the three tribes would camp uh, to the west and three tribes to the east and three tribes to the north and three tribes to the south. And right smack in the middle was what? The tabernacle, the tent of meeting, in which there was a holy place. And in the holy place was a manifestation of the presence of God, right? Because he was right in the middle of the camp, right in the center of his people. This is the story of the whole Bible, right? So that when God Himself actually comes, not in a, not in a um, symbolic presence and in a, a, a pillar of fire, but in the flesh, into the world, the Bible says, You shall call His name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us, right? We go all the way to the, um, Jesus departing from the earth, and what does He tell the disciples? Don't be afraid. For I will be with you always even to the end of the age. I will never ever leave you or forsake you. I will send my Holy Spirit. I will dwell inside of you. The witness. What about adversity? What does the Bible say? Right? We, yea though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. What's it say next? Thou art with me, not with me. Isaiah forty-three says, you know, in the flood, in the fire, in adversity, you will not be burned, you will not drown, because I will be with you. Is there anything better than this? Right. And the Word became flesh, John chapter one, and what dwelt among us with us, the God who's not removed from us, the God who's with us. If you do not have God with you, you cannot have life. This is life. If you haven't heard of Anthony Ray Hinton, if you haven't read his book, The Sun Does Shine, just take out your phone right now and order it on Amazon, right in the middle of church. (laughs) Pastor's Blessing. Don't dip into reading your Instagram or Twitter or anything else. Get the book. Anthony Ray Hinton is an incredible story. I heard it again this week. I was listening to a podcast where he was being interviewed. So this young man is in Birmingham, Alabama. He's mowing his mother's lawn. He lives with his mom. And police cars pull up. They arrest him for uh, and charge him with murder Um, Of course, he's absolutely flabbergasted by um, this. Um, He hasn't done it. Um, In fact, um, the... um, Ballistics, whatever that is, they test the don't match the gun that was that his mother had in her house. I mean, he's proven not guilty. The policeman tells him uh, right when he's arrested. Matter of fact, on the way to the jail, he says, "I don't care whether you're guilty or innocent. It doesn't matter. You're black. A black man committed this crime. We got one. We got you. That'll do." He is sentenced to thirty years in prison, and he's put on death row. And he is so angry at God, he says he takes his Bible and he throws it under his bunk in the prison and he doesn't look at it for two years and he doesn't talk to anybody, not his jailers, not anybody, not the other prisoners. He's in death row. He's virtually in solitary confinement anyway and he doesn't talk to anybody for two years until one night he hears a prisoner crying, wailing, and his heart is broken by the agony of this man And suddenly he finds this voice calling out and saying, are you okay? What's wrong? And this man sputtering through his tears, this man who happens to be a Klansman, this man who happened to have lynched, the last person lynched in the state of Alabama, tells him that his mother died. And Hinton's heart is broken and out of him comes love for this man and they become the best of friends. And this begins... 30 years of ministry this man does inside death row in prison. This, Do you you get the point? Why was Anthony Ray Hinton, not only why did he persevere, why did he emerge from that not being a bitter, angry, broken man? Why did he minister for 28 of those 30 years in prison to the other prisoners? Because what? God was with him. God was with him. Listen, um many of you know I've been to church here for a couple of years that um, a couple of years ago we got the awful news that our daughter had a brain tumor and um, she was taken to Houston for surgery and my wife and I made our way uh there and um um it was covid so you know you couldn't you couldn't even w- couldn't be in the hospital he couldn't even bring her in the hospital when you dropped her off and uh so i got a airbnb about an hour i mean about a mile mile and a half away and and i told my wife during the surgeries seven hour eight hour surgery we'll we'll just hunker down at the airbnb we'll we'll stay uh attuned for um uh any results of what's happening um because it's really hot and uh, we'll have that place to wait. And she said, no, I'm not doing that. It's the first time she's ever disagreed with me. <laughs> now, you got to know something about Houston. He, that's my wife calling right now to <laughs> say you didn't tell that right. Um, first, if you've ever been in Houston in August, then you know that people... People arranged a vacation in hell to get out of Houston, right? I mean, it's that hot. And so um, I said, hey, okay, 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 I get it. Here's what we'll do. We'll just get a car up right next to close to the hospital. and We'll sit in the car. We'll have the air conditioning on and we'll, we'll wait really close. She said, no, that's not going to do. My back is going to be against that hospital wall. I'm going to sit right outside the door. I'm going to go as far as they let me go until they make me stop. And I learned something about the fierce love of this woman. She was saying, I will be there. I will be as close as I can get. And so we sat with our backs against the wall, right by the glass, opening and closing as the ambulance would drop people off. And even in that, what was our only consolation? Because even if there was no COVID, we could have only been in a patient waiting room. We couldn't be with her. What was our only consolation? That she has a heavenly father and he was in that operating room with her and she was never alone and she'll never be alone. You cannot have a successful life unless God is with you. Because if he is, he always is. He will never leave you or forsake you. Second, it's not just his witness; it's the it's purpose, right? It's, it's to be living according to his purpose for you. For many, we know, they'd say the successful life is to be prominent in your field. It's to be admired. You know, it's to be killing it financially. It's to be able to vacation in Europe or cruise wherever you want to. But here's the point. The successful life, however, is not to be driven by a desire for your prosperity, but it's to be driven for a desire for the flourishing of the world and the honor of your God, the creator who made it. The point of a life is not for you to prosper, but for others to prosper. It's to be marked by self-forgetfulness. The way to glory is crucifixion. It's not exaltation, right? The Christian says, I must decrease. Others must increase for the glory of God, right? I go down to go up. I make of myself nothing, It's self-forgetfulness. Many people are driven to what's called the successful life because they want to elevate themselves. Um, they They may gain great success in various ways, but ultimately it's about covering their own inadequacies, feeling good about themselves, achieving for themselves, earning honor for themselves. Right? The successful life... Say not me. I live for others. I don't gain, I give. Not to be served, but to serve, right? I love Terrell Owens. Terrell Owens was a professional football player. He was really good. He was a wide receiver. Played for the 49ers. I know he played for the Cowboys. Uh, Terrell Owens is known for this classic um, description of his ethos in life. I love me some me. What tar- I love me some me. Um, you might remember him on the star on the Dallas Cowboys field one time. All the other players were down near the end zone. He was standing in the middle of the field on the star twirling around uh, so all the fans could adore him. I love me some me. That's the American ethos. Um, The successful life is to labor, not for your flourishing, but others. Joseph is the first in the line of the patriarchs to deliver on what God promised through Abraham. God made three promises to Abraham. You remember what they were? He said, Abraham, I'm going to give you a family, right? And that's taken much of our attention in in the book of Genesis, right? I'm going to give you a family. I'm going to give you so many children, uh, it'll be like uh, the, the sand on the seashore. And you know what? I'm looking at the fulfillment of that promise. You're in that family if you belong to Jesus. But he also said, I'm gonna give you a land, that land where the, Israel is now, that land that they've been fighting over ever since, right? But there was a third promise. He said what? And Abraham, your seed is going to bless the entire earth your seed, which is um, what Joseph himself is doing here. God said, my people will bless the whole earth. And Joseph was successful. And he's successful for who? Here's the point. Is Joseph um, successful for a fine Christian man? Who's Joseph successful for? A pagan, idolatrous man and a pagan culture right? He's successful for Egypt. They have more gods and idols in Egypt than you could possibly imagine. The scholars can't even identify all of them. And this is who his life benefits, right? Um, Listen, when God commanded, you know, when God's people, just like Joseph was ripped out of his homeland in, in, in Egypt, God's people at other times were ripped out of their land and sent to a place called Babylon, what was the one word that described the evil of the world to its ultimate max? The word Babylon, Babylon, anti-God Babylon. So when God's people ended up in Babylon because they'd been conquered, do you think God might've said, so now what I want you to do is I want you to form this sort of guerrilla force undercover I want you to do everything you can to undermine Babylon. I want you to destroy this wicked culture from within inside. Actually, this is what he said to them. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles I've sent into exile to Babylon. I want you to build houses and live with them, plant gardens, eat their produce, and seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you. I want you to be a blessing to these pagan people these people who don't know me and love me and even hate me this is our calling this is our calling in in the world you know to bless to bless our culture to bless our community um god puts it in the new testament it uses a different phrase it says we are to be salt and what Light. What does salt do? It preserves. We're to be the preservative in a rotting world, and we're to be a light that points. What what good is a light unless you go right into the heart of darkness? Right? It's in the heart of darkness that you're bringing. What good is salt if you don't apply it? Right? If you don't bring it to where things are decaying and broken, that's what we're to be. Guy in this church was. uh, I won't tell you exactly what he was. Something like um, alcohol, tobacco, firearm, homeland security, you know, that kind of stuff, undercover security stuff. He called me late, late, late one night. He was in Las Vegas. They were doing a, they were infiltrating a money laundering operation. And he called me up and he was whispering. And he said, The agents, the guys I'm working with are stealing the money. In other words, the good guys that were supposed to be getting the bad guys were acting like the bad guys. That's salt. Press the salt wherever we go. Otherwise, the rot will just spread and spread and spread, right? Um... And here he is calling his pastor. I don't know what to do, right? Um, so, you know, you might think, well, who does God put in the world to be salt and light? Who does God put in the world to bring his blessing? We call those people pastors and missionaries and people who run Samaritan's Purse and Doctors Without Borders. No, 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 no. What's the point? Is Joseph a pastor? Is Joseph a missionary? What is joseph he 's a businessman he 's an executive in Potiphar 's house, right? and ultimately, Joseph becomes a government official. Joseph becomes the FEMA director for uh, Israel who's going to face a massive famine. Joseph becomes the the the, the, the secretary of the Treasury, right. Um, Uh, commandeering Egypt's uh, budget and money to be able to rescue this entire nation. That's who God uses. You know, pastors and missionaries, they're okay. Better than okay. Um, But the successful life is the urban planner and the musician and the farmer and the military officer and the welder and the Uber driver and the venture capitalist, all of whom are living for the glory of God, not for themselves, for the flourishing of creation. You got it? Paul Farmer. So Diane and I are in um, Sweden and we're celebrating an anniversary, having this lovely dinner. And next to us, and this table's very close together, uh, is seated a lovely um, woman. She's a black woman. She's got two nieces with her. We strike up a conversation. Um, Sweden is a very white place. And uh, we discover she's from Rwanda. And she uh, is the ambassador uh, from Rwanda to um, Sweden. And a prominent, uh, important woman... And I asked, "How did you get, um, you know, how did you get to be given this uh, a prominent position?" And she said, "Well, I was the health minister in Rwanda." And It just struck me to ask her, "Do you know Paul Farmer?" And she said, her face just lit up, and she said, "He's my friend." And she whipped out her phone and started showing me pictures of her with Paul Farmer. I said, "That's amazing. He's one of my heroes. I've never met Paul Farmer. She's Paul Farmer's her friend." Paul Farmer, the only reason I know of him is because he wrote a book called Mountains Beyond Mountains. Get your phone out again, order that book. Mountains Beyond Mountains. Paul Farmer um, would spend half of his year teaching at Harvard Medical School and half of his year living in a hovel in a village in Haiti. He became the world's number one expert in infectious diseases, uh, primarily AIDS and tuberculosis. Paul Farmer is a Christian Um, And you know the most amazing thing about Paul Farmer to me? he's from Brooksville, Florida. He grew up in Brooksville, Florida, so poor that his family lived in an abandoned school bus. Out of Brooksville, Florida. That's like out of the depths of hell. God plucked this guy and he made him his. And he sent him to the world to bless the whole world. That's what God does. That's what he promised Abraham he would do. You got it? Meet a guy outside church a couple months ago. He had just joined the church. I didn't know him well. I asked him what he did. He said, I he kind of lowered his head and his countenance, and he said, I work for mosquito control board. And I said, So you kill mosquitoes. And he said, Yeah. And he said, My, you know, it's kind of interesting because my kid gets welts when he gets bit by mosquitoes. And so, you know, it's kind of personal to me. Me against the mosquitoes. I said, Do you know what kills more people on the planet Earth than any other creature? It's the mosquito through malaria. And I said, Do you realize how important what you're doing is? Do you realize it's not just your son you're defending? You're defending every child in this community. You kill mosquitoes in a fight to keep this community healthy and our children safe. You ought to get out of your bed every morning with the greatest pride. I don't know anybody who does something more important in this community than what you do. And I'll never forget, he just kind of looked at me and his eyes kept getting bigger and bigger. And he said, wow that changes everything. To have God with you and to be about what he created you to do, it changes everything. Third point, and maybe the best, the passion of God, not just his presence or his purpose, but his passion. Now what threatens to derail Joseph's success? Well, it's, a woman, Potiphar's wife. This is a power encounter, right? This is like a me too in the Bible. Only most me too's in our culture have been per- perpetrated by men because they were the ones in power. Here the woman is the one in power. She's she's the boss. She's the owner, right? And, um, and she wants um, Joseph and uh, she says, sleep with me. Only it's that could be very flirtatious, but it's not. This is very forceful in the, in the language, in the in the Hebrew. Uh, I'm the boss. I'm giving orders. You will do it. Now, there's a lot of reasons that Joseph could have rationalized to say yes to this um, entreaty, right? Um, he could have said, uh, nobody will know. It's not in her best interest to talk to anybody about this, if this affair uh, takes place. Um, He could have said, don't I deserve a little happiness? I mean, look at what I've done for this house, too. He could have said, Potiphar doesn't like her that much Uh, anyway. Um, He could have said, she's the boss, right? You know, I better do what I'm told. He could have said, this is the way it happens. You know, you sleep your way to the top. He could have said, listen, sexual promiscuity between the owners and slaves was widespread. um, But he says, no. Day after day, she persists. And one day, she actually physically goes after him. She grabs a hold of him, and he flees from the house. And in so doing, she actually wrenches his tunic off of him. Does that remind you of some one thing earlier in his story? His brothers took his coat away. And uh, she then screams out for help. She's been horribly attacked, She claims by this lowly, dirty Hebrew in the house. Then when her husband comes home, she lays his garment out right there in the bed next to her, sets up the whole scene to frame Joseph. And um, Joseph, you know, ends up in um, prison. Uh, why does Joseph say no? Why does Joseph say no? What does the Bible say? Um, He said, He is not greater. My master is not greater in the house than I am. Nor has he kept anything from me except you. Because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness? In other words, he says, no, because he says it would be wicked. Now, why would it be wicked? It would be wicked because she's married to another man. But that's not really why it's wicked entirely because if she wasn't married, it would still be wicked. It's not just that she's married to another man. It's that she's not married to Joseph. And if she's not married to Joseph, then this sexual act would be wicked. That's what the Bible says. Honor God with your body. Sex is designed to create a one flesh union. That's what it says in Genesis chapter two, right? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. That's where marriage is created. Man and a woman. He leaves his father and mother, he holds fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. You're to give yourself sexually to someone who you've given yourself to completely and exclusively. You've given yourself to them socially, economically, legally, emotionally, spiritually. And so to be physically united... Is an expression of this whole life union. So casual sex violates the whole purpose of sex, right? Casual sex declares, you know, I am I don't want you. I want what you can give me. I want pleasure for myself. I want your body. I, I just want it now, I want it temporarily. I want it while it's attractive to me. I don't want you. I don't want to take care of you the last 10 years of your life when you have Alzheimer's, right? And you don't even know who I am and you're living in a care facility. I don't want that. I'm not making that kind of commitment um, to you. I don't even want you. I really want me. I want what's good for me. Um, I don't want to serve you. I don't want to share my possessions with you so sex is is physically expressing a whole life whole self commitment and to and to enter into it casually is a gross misappropriation of this great gift of god but that's not entirely why he says no put that verse back up there again on why he says no He says, My master is not greater in this house than I am. He hasn't kept anything from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do this great wickedness and sin against? What do you think you're going to hear right there? How could I do this great wickedness and sin against Potiphar? Everything else he says there has to do with Potiphar. But he says, How could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Do you know what he's saying? I already have a lover. My needs are satisfied. I have someone who is the captain of my heart already. This is what the ancients called, this is what the Puritans called, the expulsive power of a greater affection. What gives you the power to say no, to illicit sex, to porn, for whatever lust you have? The lust for a new kitchen. The lust for more shoes. The lust for a boat. Everything that you'd love more, right? Everything, you know, we attempt to satisfy, to soothe our souls with stuff or with sexuality. Um, you try to soothe your soul to show To feel valuable, to feel important. People even use, um, they use relationships, they use their work, they use um, religion, all to feel better about ourselves. But it's only the love of God that satisfies you. You can try to soothe your soul with indulgence, but it will never work. If you think there's something that you could get it and it would make you happy, it would make your life whole and rich, I promise you, you may not go to bed the night you get it. Still full. It has no staying power. It cannot fill your soul. C.S. Lewis Said Most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we fall in love or think of some traveling to some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, and no learning can really satisfy If I find in myself desires which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy, but only to arouse a desire for the real thing. Earthly pleasures are just a little taste, but there's something deeper, there's something better, there's something our souls crave. And you know what that is? It's the love of God. It's the affirmation, it's the affection of God. Joseph had it. So he could say no to the cheap trinket of sex with this woman, because his soul was filled. Um, there was another Joseph that comes in the Bible, you know. There was another son who had a lived in a palace, and he had a father, and his father adored him. Joseph lost all that, and so so did this other. Joseph, um, like uh, like Joseph, this other was falsely accused, thrown into prison. This other Joseph was named Jesus. He's the lover of your soul. You know, when Joseph was thrown in prison, he ultimately got out. He didn't suffer. Because God was with him when Jesus was thrown in prison and nailed to a tree, he didn't get out because God was not with him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the most plaintive cry ever heard in human history. Eloi, Eloi, labak sabak that I. Why, why, where are you? And he wasn't there because Jesus was taking what we deserve. We deserve to be abandoned by God. But he was abandoned by God so that we never would be. That's the great love. That's what everyone longs for. That somebody will see me in all my ugliness and they will want me and they will love me. You can't have a successful life unless you are loved. I'm just gonna finish by saying this. I was a pastor. I was a Christian for a long time before I knew this love. I preached about it, of course. I sang Jesus Loves Me all my life. I grew up in the church. I knew about the love of God. I could teach about the love of God. But I didn't know it. I hadn't felt it. It hadn't touched me. I didn't understand it. It hadn't gripped me. And I have to say that in God's providence, you know, I was a Christian a long time, I was a pastor a long time before I ever experienced it. And if I'm ever to be labeled successful, it will be and only be because my deep insecurity was finally quieted I have lived my whole life deeply insecure, but that insecurity was finally quieted by the affection of God. You cannot be successful, have a successful life, if you don't love, and you can't love unless you've been loved. Amen. God, um, would you make your affection for us so beautiful, so real, so palpable? You're not just a distant potentate who we believe is true and real God, but you're the God who comes into the world. You're the God who does life with us. You're the God who pursues us. And you're the God who dies for us. Lord, win us with your love afresh, we pray. Amen.